0: This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycency.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verses 33 through 39. It's found on page 861 in the Bibles in your rows if you'd like to turn there and follow along as I read. Luke five thirty-three to 39. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and often prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. Be yours, eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from, an old, from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, what I want to do today is uh, to give you a little bit of what you might call a theology of feasting. And uh, I'm going to, just a fair warning, I'm going to come on pretty strong uh, this morning teaching that, uh, in favor of the idea that feasting and celebration is the normative mode of the Christian life. But that said, before I get into it, before I come on strong, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. OK? Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that there's not a time to weep. I'm not saying that we should paper over the suffering that we find in the world, the suffering we see in our own lives by sort of putting on a happy face. I'm not saying there's not a time for fasting and for mourning. In fact, we have a whole series coming up on the book of Lamentations in a few weeks, and we'll be grappling with all of those things, right? There is a time to mourn. There is a time to weep. There is a time for sorrow. And I know some of you are in the thick of some terrible difficulties right now. We just prayed for Miles and Emily to that. Extent. So while this is a sermon today about feasting and celebration, please do not hear this as ignoring the realities of sin and brokenness and heartache and trial and suffering in this world. Rather, I'd hope that you would hear this instead as a strategy in which to face those trials and heartaches and suffering and darkness, even as a way to push back. Against the darkness we see in the world, not to ignore it. So caveats aside, right, as a beginning this morning, my thesis is, if you don't celebrate well, if you don't learn to feast, you will suffer. Your understanding of the gospel will suffer. And ultimately, your mission in this world will suffer. If you don't learn to feast well, if you don't learn to celebrate, I think you will suffer because we're made for that kind of celebration and joy. Your understanding of the gospel will suffer, will undervalue and underplay what's been done on our behalf and ultimately the story that you tell to those around you. Your mission will suffer in the world. Now, if I'm even close to the truth and any of that this morning, then the stakes are high for what we're talking about. And I know that is a big claim. And so let me try to prove it to you, even before we get into the passage here, right at the start. Three things just to hold in your mind this morning. They they should be kind of easy to remember. You can talk about them over lunch. Three things I just love you to think about. Seven to one, Louis, Louis, and the Son of Man came. Seven to one, Louis, Louis, the Son of Man came. All right, seven to one. That is the ratio of feast to fast in the Old Testament law. The only fast prescribed annually in the Old Testament law, perpetually prescribed, is the Day of Atonement. But on the other hand, there's all kinds of feasts commanded of God's people in the Old Testament to be celebrated year after year. And most of the time, they lasted many days, seven to one. Now, if you're a Christian, my contention is you should be at least as celebratory as the people were during the period of the Old Testament. And think about it, you actually have much more reason to celebrate. The book of Hebrews says they had shadows back then, but you have the reality now. They longed for a savior, but our savior has come. They saw the spirit's anointing come upon people from time to time, but you have the Holy Spirit living inside you. They went to a temple. You are the temple of the living God. They had a sense that death could somehow be defeated. But you know that Jesus Christ died and rose again. He says he's going to prepare a place for you in the kingdom of heaven. They longed for a bridegroom for Israel to come and redeem his people. We have the bridegroom who has already come. Seven to one. We ought to be at least as celebratory as the people in the Old Testament. All right, Louis Louis. I read a while back about a man in Philadelphia who uh, organized a parade. And the theme of the parade was the rock and roll song, Louie Louie. Now the guy, you know, when he was interviewed about the parade, he explained, you know, uh, he just kind of wanted to throw a parade. And uh, that seemed, you know, the song Louie Louie was as good a reason as anything else. And let me suggest to you, there's something deeply good and right about that impulse. To look for something, to look for anything really that's worth celebrating. And sometimes the best you can do is just to find a a rock and roll song, right? But even that is worth throwing a party about. You know, every community is telling a story. Every community is telling a story. Sometimes we tell it with our words, but often we tell it with the quality of our life together, right? We're telling a story about God. We're telling a story about what it's like to know him. And sadly, sometimes, The church has told a story that seems perpetually dour. And that story goes something like this. Don't smile too much. Tuck your shirt in. Hey, it's not much fun, but that's the price you pay in order to get into heaven. Groucho Marx said once, I've had a wonderful evening. This wasn't it. (laughs) Unfortunately, that's some people's experience of coming into contact with the church of Jesus Christ. It should not be, though the story we're telling with our community. In John chapter 2, Jesus performs his very first miracle. It's at a wedding. Maybe you've heard this story before. It's at a place called Cana, and they run out of wine. And so the party's in jeopardy, and, and Jesus steps in. And if you know this story, he turns water into wine, a lot of wine, actually. And uh, Dostoevsky has this place in his novel, The Brothers Karamazov, where he, the characters talk about this story. And the characters are talking about it. And John 2, they're talking about it. And, and they said, you know, these, these people, they would have uh, been fairly poor people, the people throwing this wedding. The family would have spent all their resources to make this party happen, to celebrate their children's marriage, to celebrate their uh, life together in this community, in this neighborhood, in this village. And so what a disappointment then to have the wine run out, and the celebration cut ashore. short. What, what uh, a disappointment then to know that all you have is not enough. And so Jesus steps in. And here's what the priest in Brothers Karamazov says in, uh, in the novel. He says, I love that passage. It's Cana of Galilee, the first miracle. Ah, oh, that miracle. all oh, that sweet miracle. It was not men's grief, but their joy that Christ visited. He worked his first miracle to help men's gladness he who loves men loves their gladness too. Do you know that about Jesus? That he loves you and that he loves your gladness too? Do the people around you know that about Jesus and the way that you live your life? Is that the story that we're telling our city? The quality of our life together. Every community tells a story. Seven to one, Louie Louie. The Son of Man came. You know, the New Testament completes that sentence exactly three times. Class, you know how that ends? You don't have to answer it out, right? But I'll, I'll give it to you, all right? The Son of Man came. First, Mark chapter 10. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then secondly, in Luke 19, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost And then finally, in Luke chapter 7, verse 34, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. I think you can go ahead a few slides there. I think we've got those all up there on the screen. You should be able to see them. There we go. Yeah, one more. Yeah, so all three of those, right? The first two statements are statements of purpose, right? Why has Jesus come? We came to serve. He came to give his life as a ransom. He came to seek and to save the lost. The third statement is a statement of method. How did Jesus come? He came eating and drinking. Robert Karras, the New Testament scholar, said in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. All the action in Luke, Jesus is on his way, he's either at a meal, on his way to a meal, coming from a meal. And usually those meals were parties. Now, isn't that something? Jesus Went to a lot of parties. But it's even more than that. Because think about his parables. Think about Jesus teaching. Think about how many of the parables are about parties, about celebrations. A lot of them start out something like, you know, when you throw a party. And then the parable goes on to explain who you should invite, right? Invite the poor. Invite people who can't do anything for you. Don't make your relationships utilitarian. But notice, when you throw a party. Or the parables, some of them are like, when you go to a party. And then it's a story about how to behave when you get there. Don't clamor for the best seat. Take the lowest seat and so on. Or some of the parables remind us that the kingdom of God is like a party. And Jesus goes on to talk about how to get in, right? Some don't respond to the invitation. And so messengers go out to the highways and the byways. And the people that you'd least expect to be there are the ones who ultimately make it into the party. But don't miss it. The kingdom of God is like a party And when you get to the very end of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, we see the wedding supper of the lamb capping it all off. Now, all this is by way of introduction to the passage that we have before us today that Jenny just read to us. Our text, Luke chapter 5, it's a conversation about fasting that Jesus very quickly turns into a conversation about feasting. And so let's think about it this morning. Let's dig into the passage. Verse 33, they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Now, the concern behind that statement is really a concern about the whole demeanor of Jesus and his band. It's as if they're saying, Jesus, if you're going to be religious, do it properly. You know, that would be the British way to say it, right? Do it properly. Uh, If you're going to be religious, Right? Have, have, have the right sort of spirit about it, Jesus. And Leon Morris characterizes, when he's one of the, the Old Testament comment, or New Testament commentators, he says, you know, the problem was Jesus' disciples were just too cheerful. Now, the context of this, right, is it comes on the heels of the conversation that um, Pastor Ryan talked about in his sermon last week, the story of the tax collector, Right? Jesus uh, tells Levi, encounters the tax collector, the collaborator with the uh, oppressive Roman government, sort of the lowest of the low. And he says to Levi, follow me. And Levi immediately throws a party. And Jesus goes to the party. And it's not just Levi there, but it's all his shady friends. It's his tax collector friends. And so the charge, again, in, uh, of the Pharisees in uh, the text that Ryan looked at last week is that Jesus is somehow cheapening the kingdom. Can these guys really get in? Why associate with tax collectors and sinners? Why cheapen the brand? And Jesus responds, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And so with Levi, the tax collector, it's why are you cheapening the kingdom? But here in our story, it's Jesus, why are you cheapening discipleship? Are your uh, disciples really serious about religion? Doesn't seem so. Isn't fasting more appropriate for a religious person? But your guys don't do it, Jesus. Why is that? Now, we should stop for a second maybe and say, well, what is fasting? Fasting is just very simply, it's intentionally going without food for a time. Usually you drink water or juice or something, uh, and sometimes certain kinds of food allowable depending on the type of fast and so on. But that's what fasting means literally, right? To deny yourself food, Uh, for a period of time. And as a spiritual practice, there's all sorts of good reasons for someone to fast. Fasting can be a vehicle for creating uh, an intense sort of spiritual focus, a fuller concentration on the things of God, right? Even as you go about your daily business, fasting sort of reminds you to turn your attention to God, right? The hunger pains actually serve as an aid in that, as a way of keeping you, calling you to prayer, and even as you go about your normal day. It also creates space for that, the idea is that in the time that you would normally be eating meals, you would take time to pray or to read God's word. Fasting can free up resources, can free up money for mission by not eating. You can give away the money that you would have used in order to help the poor, for example. And because fasting can create a sense of physical emptiness, it can be an aid to our prayers of repentance. It can remind us of our weakness and our need to be filled by God. And So there are plenty of good reasons to fast. And Jesus was not against fasting. Not at all. In fact, at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke, one of the first things that Jesus does as he begins his ministry is he goes out and he fasts for 40 days. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous teaching, he doesn't say, if you fast, but he says, when you fast. So Jesus actually expects that there will be good reasons and good times for his disciples to fast. So he's not against it. And we see here, John the Baptist's disciples, it seems, had made a regular part of their spiritual discipline, the idea of fasting, perhaps for some of the reasons that I just listed for you. But the Pharisees were more rigorous still. And as I said before, the Old Testament only commands fasting one day per year on the Day of Atonement, but the Pharisees thought, if you're going to be really serious about this, really serious about religion, really serious about following God, then you should fast much more than that. And so the Pharisees fasted, twice a week. And Ryan made reference last week to Luke 18, but in that parable that Jesus tells, he tells a story of a Pharisee coming into the temple to pray, and the Pharisee sort of sets himself apart from the rest of the people, kind of stands off to the side, and he begins to pray, and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like all these other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And then he goes on to List in his prayer all the good things that he's been doing, fasting twice a week among those things that he lists. Now, that prayer that Jesus gives us in the parable in Luke 18, it gives us an insight into the way at least some of the Pharisees thought about spiritual practices. You know, normally when you say things like, God, I thank you for, right, then you go on to list Things that God has done for you, right? Graces you have received, undeserved blessings that have come into your life. But when the Pharisee prays, he says, God, I thank you. And then he goes on to list all the good things that he has done, right? And we see, right, including fasting among them. You see what's going on there, right? The Pharisees, at least some of them, used fasting and other spiritual disciplines as a way to present their resume to God. Look how devoted I am, God. Look how much I'm denying myself. I really am holy now. Bless me accordingly. God, I'm good. So you owe me. And beyond that, it was a way of marking themselves off from the unrighteous. It was a way to feel good about yourself as you look down on others. Thank you, God, that I'm not like these other people who don't fast like I do. So fasting in the first century was a sign of serious religious commitment. And here comes Jesus. And here comes His guys. And they aren't doing it, or at least they're not doing much of it. Why? Jesus gives us the answer in the next verse, verse 34. Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? It's not that fasting is bad, it's just that feasting is better. And in particular, Jesus says, this is a time for the feast. Jesus says, what's going on right now with my ministry in the world, it's like a wedding. And I'm the bridegroom and my disciples, all my followers are the wedding guests. So why in the world would you fast at a time like that? I mean, can you imagine going to a wedding reception where the bride and groom cut the cake and then nobody gets to eat anything? I mean, that would be kind of anticlimactic, wouldn't it? Can you imagine going to a wedding where there's a toast and everybody raises a class, but they're all empty? how lame would that be, right? I had a friend who grew up uh, working in a nursing home. It was our high school and college job. And she told the story about this one little girl who would come and visit uh, the nursing home. I don't think she had any relatives in there, but her parents brought her around to go and visit the nursing home. And of course, everybody there loved to see her. They looked forward to her visit. She had a smile that lit up the room and Everybody, is fair to say, they they, they look forward to her coming. They delighted in her when she was there. And so she knew this. And one day, this little girl, when she got there, she ran in the front door and she yelled at the top of her lungs, I'm here. You can be happy now. (laughs) That's actually kind of what Jesus is saying here, isn't it? This is not a time for fasting. This is a time for feasting. I'm here. You can be happy now. Now, this is cute when a child says it. It's a little weird when an adult says it. And then you tack on the title that Jesus gives himself, and it starts to make folks a little bit uncomfortable. Because Jesus calls himself the bridegroom. And the folks who would have been hearing this, if they knew their Old Testament scriptures, they would know the bridegroom of Israel was God himself. In the Old Testament, time and again, God refers to himself as the husband Of his people Israel, Hosea, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and probably most famous, the prophet Isaiah. For example, Isaiah 54. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Any person familiar with the Old Testament scriptures would have heard Jesus' claim to be the bridegroom as a claim to be God himself. And one of the reasons you would fast is that God feels far away. But now God is here. Jesus says, I'm here. So you can be happy now. Now he does say down in verse 35 that there will be a time when the bridegroom will be taken away and that will be a time for fasting. Verse 35, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. And almost certainly here he's referring to his crucifixion. The Greek word taken away actually is sort of imbued in the meaning of it is is the notion of violence, violently taken away. Jesus is talking about his death and that would be a time, this is a time to mourn and to weep and to fast. But Jesus goes on to describe his followers ultimately as wedding guests and wedding guests don't fast at a party, not while the bridegroom is with you. When I uh, lived in New Jersey, there was a guy who lived in our building. Uh, His name was Zoltan, and uh, he was from a town in Hungary called Heidel szloboszlo I'm sure I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, but that's that's the way I remember it anyway. Zoltan from Heidel szloboszlo And uh, as much trouble as I had with the pronunciation of his hometown he could not remember our names at all. So he would refer to any of us that he met by whatever it was we were doing at the time that he saw us. So when our friend Scott was walking down the hall carrying some boxes, uh, Zoltan said, you are an efficient mover. And then that's what he was called from then on, the efficient mover. Uh, One time my friend Matt, my roommate uh, Matt, threw a party. And so whenever Zoltan saw him thereafter, he would call Matt, you are the party maker, you know which is kind of a cool nickname, but that's a little bit of what you've got here. Jesus is the party maker. Jesus is the bridegroom. His mission is a wedding and the bridegroom is here, which means it's time to feast and to celebrate. He goes on then to elaborate on this by telling a parable. It says, verse 36, he told them a parable. And if you're imagining here a parable with convincing characters and a plot twist and interesting storyline, you're going to be disappointed because this is more of a string of metaphors than it is a story. But Jesus goes on. He says, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. I used to have this uh, long-sleeve t-shirt that I got when I was 18, 19 years old, something like that. And I hung under this thing for like 15 years, despite the fact that it was virtually torn to shreds. You know, it was hanging on just by like one strip of cloth, you know, it was in every way irreparable. Too many holes, no patch could really fit it in any way, shape or form, but it was so comfortable. I just wanted to hang on to this thing. I would wear it under other shirts. And then, uh, you won't believe this, but one day my wife Paige threw it away. Can you believe the Offense against personal property rights that she committed in that moment, right? In, in her terms, it came up missing, I think is how she described it. I'm, 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 after reading this story in Jesus' parable, I'm a little more sympathetic to Paige's case here because that's kind of what's happening here. Jesus is saying you can't patch something like this, right? In Mark's gospel, it's even more clear why because it refers to the new garment that you're trying to sort of patch on there as a, an unshrunk cloth. Remember, they didn't have pre-shrunk things back then, right? So if you take an unshrunk piece of fabric and you put it onto uh, an older fabric that's already shrunk, when the new fabric begins to shrink, again, it's going to tear away. It's going to make the holes even worse in the old fabric. And to to make it even uh, more foolish, the new garment is also destroyed, right? You've already cut up a new piece of cloth. So you've ruined both the old and the new for no good reason, and Jesus continues, verse 37, he says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. skins. And if he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Wine in those days was put into containers of animal skins for fermentation. And since wines emitted gases and expanded as it fermented, new wine had to be put into new skins, which were flexible, and capable of expanding, stretching. Old skins, which had already stretched as far as they could, were brittle, and thus you'd never put new wine in them. Now, what's the point that Jesus is making here with these metaphors, these images? But Jesus is saying, right, that his coming into the world, his ministry is so new, so different, so radical, that it can't possibly be contained in any of the old forms. In other words, Jesus is not a patch. For your old way of life. You can't just do everything the same as you did before with just a little Jesus tacked on and think that's what the Christian life is all about. He's new wine, he's saying. He can't be contained or assimilated into old, the old wineskins of your previous framework, your previous way of thinking about the world, about your life, about your calling. In other words, when the bridegroom comes, it changes everything. That's the point of the parable. And so let me just close by leaving with you just a couple of questions, three questions actually to ponder this morning as we close and throughout the week. You can talk about it in your community groups. You can talk about it over lunch. But three questions about this passage. And the first is this. Has following Jesus radically changed your life? Or is he something more like something you've tacked on? In other words, you're doing life pretty much the same way just a little Jesus thrown in or your life looks just the same as everybody else around you in your neighborhood your school your socioeconomic class whatever it may be we just you got a little Jesus on Sunday or on Wednesday night or whatever it may be listen this whole point of this whole story is Jesus is not meant to just be a patch to your life he's not an assistant or a life coach helping you achieve your goals he's come to give us new life not just as an add-on to our old life Verse 39, then, the very last verse of the passage, really is kind of a warning, isn't it? And no one after drinking the old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Now, wine aficionados, don't read too much into this. We all know vintage wine, we all know old wine is better. Jesus is not trying to contradict that here, okay? There's limits to every kind of illustration or word picture that you give. Jesus' point is simply that some will see That he has come to change everything and that he's not just an add-on, but a total call to transformation. And then as they conclude that, they'll want to go back to the old way. They'll say, it's just easier. It's more familiar. I'm not ready for this overhaul. Jesus says, follow me. Even if that means I'm going to blow up your plans. Follow me. Even if it means radical change. Are you willing to follow Are you willing to radically reorient everything else in your life to following Jesus rather than trying to fit him in to the system that you'd already created? Has following Jesus radically changed your life? But then secondly, have you learned to feast? Have you learned to feast? If the bridegroom is coming, if he is coming again, this means the dominant note of our lives should be joy and celebration. Let me say again, just as I did at the beginning, right? This does not mean ignoring pain. This does not mean papering over suffering and trial and tribulation. We live in a broken world. Jesus said, you will have trouble. He wept with his friends when they were in those places. So feasting is not ignoring the darkness. Rather, it's a strategy for defying the darkness or pushing back against the darkness. I move to... uh, I mentioned New Jersey a minute ago. I moved to Princeton, New Jersey on uh, 9-11-2001. I was driving there as the planes hit the buildings in New York City. And uh, just about a week afterward, I went into Manhattan with some friends. And we're still, there weren't a lot of people around. There were some people around. There was still ash over the buildings. And a few restaurants had just reopened. Again, there weren't a lot of people there, but there were a few. And I just remember seeing folks sitting out at these tables on the sidewalk. And I remember thinking how bravely defiant it was. To eat those meals right there, just just inside of Ground Zero, bravely facing the darkness, breaking bread as they did it, through tears in many respects. But feasting nonetheless, hospitality, celebration, joy, laughter, love feasting are weapons of light in a world of darkness. To feast is not to ignore the darkness. It's to do battle against it. We raise a glass, toasting the real king in ante- anticipation of his coming kingdom, an eternal kingdom that will make whatever suffering we endure here ultimately seem light and momentary by comparison, to use the words of the Apostle Paul. Have you learned to feast? And then last question, what story is your life telling? What story is your life telling? What's the story of your family? What's the story that our community is telling to the world around us, to our neighbors, to our friends, to our city as a whole? Does the quality of our life together speak to the reality of Christ's presence among us? Does the quality of our life together speak to the reality that Christ who died lives again and that he's preparing a place for us in his kingdom? The bridegroom has come and he's coming again. Our calling is to live as if that is the case. And part of that is through our feasting together. Let's pray. And then we're going to come to the Lord's Supper in a moment. The band's going to come and lead us another another song. Lord, we need this teaching from Jesus. I need this teaching from Jesus. And we need not just to hear it, but through the Holy Spirit, we need to let it seep down into the deepest parts of our, our lives, our souls. And so, Lord, we ask this morning where our hearts have hardened to the change that we need, we ask that you would soften us. And Lord, when we've been overwhelmed by pain and sorrow or just the difficulties and the heaviness of life, we ask that you would heal us. And would you arm us now with the joy of the gospel and send us into the world with the weapons of laughter and love and hospitality and kindness. May we be people who feast well now in anticipation of that great feast that is to come. We pray this in the name of our Bridegroom, of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.
0: You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycency.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. dot org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.